Do you know, Bertie, there are people alive today who wouldn't have been had we not made that agreement. My own children have a life now and others tell me that they have aspirations that were not there in my generation or for others. It's been 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, but what is its legacy? The best way to judge that is how are things today? Things have worked reasonably well. You never get the perfect system, whatever that may may be, but it worked. In the course of this series, I've reunited with many of the key figures who contributed to the multi-party talks in 1997 and into 1998. Jocelyn Hoker and I were trying to assemble an agreement being negotiated by eight political parties in two governments, which is a very difficult task. We were both very committed at the time of our election in the respective countries to moving the Northern Ireland process forward. It had to be fair and there had to be something for everyone in it. That's the whole point of a peace process, that there has to be parity of pain and parity of gain. What was different about these talks, they were inclusive in the sense that they had a much wider range of people around the table and they were comprehensive in terms of the issues on the table. It was the two governments working together that they said, look, this is a chance. If we don't take this chance, we may never have it again for a long time. They decided it was better to take a risk for peace than stay in the rut of violence. And he came to me and he said, make this work. I don't want all our families to suffer what I've suffered. In this episode, I ask, how well has the Good Friday Agreement served us over the past quarter of a century? And what does the future hold for the generations to come on the island of Ireland? In 25 years' time, I might be pushing up the daisies. In fact, I will be pushing up the daisies. But at least for my grandchildren or whoever, I can say, well, piece by piece, we finally got there. A Bertie Ahern, Taoiseach of Ireland, from 1997 to 2008. And this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. Episode 9, Legacy. The Good Friday Agreement was a comprehensive agreement. It wasn't just about one or two issues. The main thing was that Tony Blair and I wanted to do was to stop the killing, stop the violence, stop the mayhem. Every day, there was an average of, you know, three people a day being killed. You know, bombs every day, same old story in the news. And the damage that did to Ireland all over the world, all, all of Ireland. Uh, because no matter where you went, the first question you were asked was about the troubles, the troubles, the troubles. And you couldn't get away from that. No matter what news we had about our pop bands or news we had about our films or news we had about our business people or our, our athletes, the troubles, the troubles was was dominating it. And I even remember the great years of the Irish soccer team. But in 1990, Ireland were in the World Cup. We, we did really well. But the news internationally was ruined because uh, a loyalist group went into a pub uh, in the north and, and shot uh, a whole load of Catholics that were watching the Republic of Ireland playing the World Cup. The story worldwide went out about the people who were shot. So it, it, it affected uh, everything. Thankfully, in the last 25 years, while we have problems in the north, there is no violence, there is no killing, there is very little uh, problems. Brexit, where the United Kingdom decided to leave Europe. We talked about everything in the Good Friday Agreement, but the one thing we never thought, nobody, none of the 10 parties, the two governments, the Americans who helped us, Bill Clinton, European Parliament, nobody ever thought that England would leave the, the European community. Ladies and gentlemen, dare to dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. And let's get rid of the flag, the anthem, Brussels and all that has gone wrong. Let, let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. But anyway, they did. They left. The Scottish voted against that. The Northern Ireland people voted against it. The Welsh narrowly uh, voted for it. The English voted narrowly for it. But Brexit has caused us problems. The Chinese had the best comment on it the day after the, the vote, which was, uh, it seems to us to be an exercise in self-marginalisation. And uh, that's mm. still true today. Martin Manser was my special advisor in Northern Ireland. 
What it has meant is that not just at head of government level, but also at ministerial level, there is no longer the political interaction uh, at meetings, you know, at European meetings uh, that were absolutely vital both in your day and Albert Reynolds' day, and even to a certain degree, though this isn't part of the conventional wisdom uh, uh, late in the day between, between Hawhey and Thatcher in the late 80s. The second thing is it is put in question one of the key achievements of the peace process in tandem with Europe, which is, uh, you know, the seamless single market. As you know, you've tens of thousands crossing the border in each direction to take up employment in the other, uh, to do their jobs in the other jurisdiction and, and, and so on. And, uh, you know, people like Derry and Donegal and, and uh, you know, would talk about being part of one region. Yeah, no, we, I mean, it just hadn't occurred to anyone that we'd be so stupid as to uh, depart, so no one had sort of made any provision for that at all in the Good Friday Agreement or anywhere else. This is Jonathan Powell, Chief of Staff to Tony Blair. The whole point of the Good Friday Agreement was to diminish the impact of identity, to make politicians think about other issues like health and education and things like that and not always be on about identity, make politics in Northern Ireland boring. And the problem is with Brexit was it's always going to have to have a border. If you're going to leave the customs union and single market, you know, Tony Blair and John Major pointed this out in the referendum in 2016. You do that, you have to have a border. If you have a border, you raise the issue of identity again. You know, someone, are they Irish or are they um, British or are they both? You can't do that if you put a border back in. And so this issue has made things difficult. I mean, peace agreements anyway are not like fairy stories. You don't live happily ever after once you signed a peace agreement. You still have political crises. You still have difficulties. But you get that, the troubles, the war out of the way so you can focus on politics instead. And I found it so encouraging that Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, two people who could both take credit for sort of starting the war, uh, I think, uh, were able to work together. And, you know, people called them the Chuckles Brothers. But actually, the fact they could... From the very first time they met and sat down and worked together really well for Northern Ireland. Well, I and I work on peace processes around the world, you know, because for me, Northern Ireland was the most important thing I did in my life and the thing I'm proudest of having achieved. So I spent a lot of time in other conflict areas. And I have to tell you, there aren't that many uh, good news stories around the world in terms of peace stories. And so people look at it with a bit of awe. I just took a group of uh, negotiators from Thailand to Northern Ireland. We stayed in the Europa Hotel. Every single speaker who came in told them this hotel was blown up 25 times. Now it's not blown up. And they couldn't believe it when they looked out the window and saw that mile up to Queens with restaurants and cafes and all the rest of it and normal life. So I think the Good Friday Agreement really has stood the test of time. Brexit is a really big test for it, but I think and I think it is having an impact on it politically, but I don't think it takes us back to the uh, to the war again. And when I reflect on the Good Friday Agreement and I look at it by comparison with other peace negotiations around the world, I think the thing that makes a difference uh, is in the end leadership. You know, is the political leadership, people prepared to take risks to make an agreement like this work and to stick? Well, that's important that we look at our mistakes because we tend to, I get a bit sick of people going around the world telling everybody about our successes. It's important that people learn from our mistakes as well as from our successes. That's Monica McWilliams of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. But you know, Bertie, there are people alive today who wouldn't have been had we not made that agreement. Um, my own children have a life now and others tell me that they have aspirations that were not there in my generation or for others. So, you know, when people say to me, what difference does it make? It made a huge difference. Peace agreements do. And then you look at the peace that have been the gaps. We, the biggest mistake we made was not having an implementation committee. And, and I'm now involved with Colombia and look at their monitoring mechanisms. And they monitor every single part of what they agreed. So did we just make promises? Was it just a set of aspirations? As my son said to me the night I come home from Good Friday, um, will there be no more rise over parades? Will there be no more riots? And I, I said, not necessarily. He said, well, what did you sign today? And for me, that was a big lesson, was you have to deliver what you promise. And enforcement and implementation is everything. I know that as somebody who spent my life working on policy and legislation in terms of women's rights, that you just don't promise somebody something. It's back again to deeds, not words. And that was the problem. We should have had that implementation committee. We should have monitored it and been very careful 
about the unintended consequences of what you review. And um, and that's difficult. And we're still in that position, but I'm still, the class more than half full. There are pieces that still need to be taken forward. I've just last night sat down um, to look at the 25th anniversary and think, well, what have we not done? And there's quite a list. <laughs> um, and I'm still, as you know, working as a commissioner on the measure stay in paramilitarism. Like after 25 years, why would there be such an issue? Well, it is because of a clash of interpretations. It's um, also that constitutional changes can happen. Brexit for me is the largest constitutional piece of self-harm I've ever watched. Well, would I have known that when I was involved in the peace negotiations? And in some ways I look back and see that we actually did promote the European Union because it was one of the ways to resolve the issue of Ireland and its relationship with Britain and Europe. Did we forget that very quickly or did people always think our day will come when we can get that back? Did the British government, Boris Johnson, think about that in terms of um, calling a referendum when people did not know? As, but we did, actually. That was the lesson of the Good Friday Agreement. We actually went out and worked to ensure that people understood what had been in our peace agreement. That was not the case when it came to issues like Brexit. But also... They, I now believe that parties are arguing for the reform of the Northern Ireland Assembly. And 25 years later, they're probably it's a dynamic instrument that we made, which was called the Good Friday Agreement. And how people voted, including myself, my own votes in the coalition weren't counted. Well, there is now almost a fifth of people who are in coming from both nationalist and unionist and other communities. Their votes should count. So it's things like that in a democratic society that quite rightly you would want to review. But you do it carefully because there can be unintended consequences. You've pointed out some of them. And the most important part is dialogue. Do not throw your toys out of the pram and go into a huff and pick up the phone when you're in a crisis and say, look, we're in trouble here. We need to talk. Despite not taking part in the final talks, the DUP became the largest party in the 2003 Northern Ireland Assembly elections with 30 seats ahead of David Trimble's UUP and Sinn Féin. Peter Robinson explained how during the campaign, the party saw opportunities to make amendments to the Good Friday Agreement. Well, we've been told all through the referendum campaign and afterwards that... Uh, this was a done deal. It's the only show in town. It can't be changed and so forth. But uh, you and I have been in politics long enough to, to know that uh, things can change very quickly. So we recognised that uh, if we had the electoral mandate, we could get changes. We knew that there were some features of the uh, agreement that we didn't want to touch. We knew there were other features of the agreement that we would like to have had changed, but they were you know, irretrievable. And then there were key issues that uh, were red lines for us. So those were the ones that we focused in on to, to get change. And those were issues like uh, the starting decommissioning, the issue of uh, the police and the courts, the accountability of ministers to an executive. Uh, those were the areas where we felt that uh, progress could be made and eventually was. Yeah. And in that election, I mean, you... You laid out the 2003 election. You, you made a fairly substantial you know, manifesto of, of the kind of future that you thought you could play a part in. Were, were you surprised at the mandate that you got that time or was it? I, I think that uh, we learned a lesson during that, uh, that election campaign. And, and in fact, at the very start of that election, uh, we went out uh, firing both barrels off at uh, the, the existing system. Uh, and found very quickly on the doorstep that, yeah, people agreed with us, but they wanted to know what was the alternative, what was the fair deal that we were, were looking for. So we very much, we changed our, our course at the very beginning of that uh, election with the experiences that we'd picked up on the doorstep. We brought out seven principles that had to be met uh, and put forward a positive campaign. You know, here are the changes. When these changes are made, then we can go forward. And electorally, in, in that election, was a very successful election for uh, for your party. Was 
did you believe at that stage that they were achievable? I mean, you were you were up for you were up for changing. If 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 I mean, it was a big decision to have to sit down with Sinn Fein and at the start working to, to work those yeah. principles through. Well, we actually didn't sit down with Sinn for a long time. <laughs> I have to say that as I look back, uh, the the one lesson that uh, I have learned is that we should never have allowed that to happen. Mm. We should have been talking directly to uh, Sinn Féin. Uh, difficult as that would have been, and uh, many of our supporters wouldn't have liked it. But there was a, an awful lot, I think, slipped between the two tables because uh, with the greatest respect to both the British and the Irish governments, they have their agendas as well. Anybody who's taking part in those kind of negotiations has an agenda. And I know in my conversations with Martin McGuinness, when we were in the First Minister's office, there were many occasions when he would say to me or I would say to him, why did you not accept this or that? That was never put to us. Uh, so, you know, they, there is no alternative really for a successful outcome uh, to, to having face-to-face -face dialogue, even though there are maybe massive difficulties in having that dialogue. Well, I think that was, you know, part of the, the even the problem in, in 98, that the amount of meetings where everybody was in the room was so few. Yes. Uh, it, 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 was, it was always Tony Blair and I talking to either one party or, and rarely talking to two parties, but never talking to all the parties. Yeah. And I think that continued on right throughout the whole process. I think that there was also a suspicion, you know, if we show any willingness to be flexible in a certain area and there's no agreement, we'll find ourselves with that in the, in the newspapers that we were willing to consider A, B or C. Yeah. Uh, and then it's to our detriment in the future. People will bank that as being our position and move on to something further. How did you find, you know, after that um, election where you were the, 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 the party with the mandate, Sinn Féin had, had the mandate, you know, it, it, it still took a few years, but it, did you feel at that stage where, you, I mean, the violence had stopped for a prolonged period at that stage, the commission still hadn't fully happened, but did you find it more promising that we could really get to to a real solution? Yes, uh, and for Ian, the issue of uh, support for the police was a massive issue, and it just wasn't on the agenda at all. We could see that there would be a way to resolve the issue of accountability. Uh, in fact, all of the other issues, I think, we could see how they could be resolved. But people just wouldn't talk about the Sinn Féin giving support for the police, and that was a big issue for us. Mm -hmm. We were greatly helped by the Americans in that, I have to say. Yeah. They took a, a very strong stand on, on that issue and helped us and put pressure, not, not just on Sinn Féin, but on our own government uh, to, to hold out for that. Uh, Mitchell Reese, I think, was the yeah. envoy at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a big issue for, for him. So that was an important issue and probably the most difficult one for us to, to crack. Uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, we had to move from a position where all of the parties had embraced an agreement. They felt some ownership of it. They didn't want to let it go. Uh, and they were wanting to save as much of it as they, they could. Uh, so it did take a, a bit of time to, to shake their hands loose from the you know, line by line uh, of the Belfast uh, agreement to start considering changes. But when they did, uh, I think at St. Andrews, things happened reasonably quickly. Well, when I look back, Peter, I, and, 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 and and this series, we're looking back, um, I, I always feel that uh, the the section decommissioning in the agreement, the trouble was we put it in, but we didn't work out how it would happen. And then we, we it, it caused us five painful years of, of trying to make progress. The same on legacy. I, I felt that legacy doesn't go away. It, it, it's, it's, it's how do we, it's, I, I know you put a lot of effort in and the Stormont House Agreement, but it, it still, it still is something 25 years on that's, that's going to, to hang on us, I think. Yes. Uh, well, we actually got an agreement uh, with all of the political parties uh, on the, the, the way forward. I, I think, in real terms, 
everybody knows how difficult it is ever going to be to get any prosecution, never mind a conviction, uh, for any of the historic troubles offences. But it's still important to many of the victims that the hope is still there. Whether some new scientific, you know, DNA came out and uh, it changed it. So there's still this lingering hope that maybe justice will be, be done. Uh, my view is that justice will be done, but perhaps not in this era. Yeah. Um, Martin McGuinness, a, a good friend of yours, a good friend of mine, we, um, and not as past, we won't go into the, all the debates and arguments about that, but as a, a political colleague, or was he a, a good, a good political colleague? And he, I think you, you've already said you were convinced that there were, anxious to move forward in a peaceful way. But my advice to, to anybody who finds themselves in that kind of situation where uh, they have they have to work with somebody that uh, they have been opposed to uh, in the most strident fashion in previous years is to search what have we got in common? And Martin and I found out very quickly that uh, we were both massive sports fans. It didn't matter what the sport was, we had been watching it uh, and we would spend our Monday morning when everybody outside thought that we were working hard on uh, getting uh, resolved the problems of Northern Ireland. We'd be talking about uh, the, the weekend sport uh, and you, you build up a relationship with people on that kind of ground. You recognise that uh, they have something in common with you and you you go beyond that and start talking about their, their families and so forth. So you build up that. It's more than a working relationship. Martin was probably the best choice that Sinn Féin could have had for First Minister. He was the easiest of the Sinn Féin members, I think, uh, to be doing business with. Uh, so it, it worked out well. And in fairness to Martin, um, I don't think Martin ever came out to say that uh, I'm sorry about my past. But I think by the actions that he took in government, his enthusiasm for making it work, he was in fact saying just that. The issue of policing is now looked upon as one of the real success stories from the peace process, praised almost universally across the board. Here's Sinn Féin's Jerry Kelly. Policing was nearly in itself as big a negotiation as the rest of it. And for all the, the historical reasons that are there, um, I mean, it was set up as a, a Protestant police force and a, a, a British police force. And um, I think at the time, I get this wrong, but it was about 5% Catholics in it, maybe. And um, it was the, the conflict, I mean, we described it as a paramilitary and political peace force. And it was entirely untrusted by the, the nationalist uh, population. And so to, to change that was huge. Uh, to give it to an international independent uh, grouping to do it uh, was probably the only way that you would have got a report. And and I have to admit that when we got the 175 recommendations back, that we were collectively quite surprised, you know, how good it was. And uh, then we sat about, unfortunately, I have to say, was I, have, I was involved in it a, a, a long time, is that the, the politics of the 175, well, Politics probably wrong word. The practicality of the 175 recommendations then was approached from a political point of view, from what we ended up calling the secure cuts, or the ones who had been there. Now, this is this is the suited people. This is not just in the OUC uh, who wanted to undermine that, and they took every and we had to fight on almost every recommendation because translating into legislation, which is why I ended up reading all this stuff, was taking the the the, the core of it out. And especially the core of it being a police force representative of the people and um, working with the people, you know, a, a force which was within the people, if you like. Um, so, yes, it was uh, a great success. I mean, the ironic thing, I mean, I've, I'm now on the police more than 11 years and nearly feel like a police, police officer myself, uh, which wasn't going down too well. But, but I mean... Trying to, it has been, that, that itself has been a long battle and there should have been huge changes. And it was, there has been huge changes. And people will still say to me, nothing's changed. When you get an incident, and most of this is dealt with in legacy. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
uh, instead of dealing with legacy, and eventually we got the Stormtrace Agreement, and even that, and we know what's happening now because they're trying to, you know, just wipe, put a lane underneath all of that and, and all of that. But legacy is what is and what was doing most damage to the new beginning to policing. I mean, as as we said, I think of the last statistics you got, which which a bit old, like, but um, was only one in five of the present PSNI were in the RUC. And if you think of the time scale that's involved, that means that one in five were probably just joining the RUC when when it was just before it changed the work. But because of the mistakes that are made, uh, um, it, it is very hard to very hard for people to and I generalize here, maybe nationalists to still but the more now there's something like thirty percent which are Catholic. One of one of the other um um issues which happened out of the Patent Commission, which was actually not necessarily well, I don't think it was mentioned in it, was that women are now nearly forty percent, which in any circumstance is a great move forward. Mm. You know? So we're in a much better place, hugely better place than we were before. Um, but legacy especially, not just legacy, but legacy especially, and because they refuse to give information out, you know, because um, new PSNI chief constables are were still refusing to give information about things that happened 20 years ago and 30 years ago, then that becomes a difficulty as well. And 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 there is a debate undoubtedly, no organisation is monolithic, and that goes to the police as well. And I think there there continues to be a debate at the higher excellence of uh, the PSNI, of those who want to move forward with the, the spirit of pattern and those who are still cautious about where that might go. Uh, but, but all in all, I think, uh, and uh, there was a, there was a, I always found this interesting, a guy called Tom Constantine, I think it was his name, I think he, he has died since, but he was the oversight commissioner. Uh, in terms of implementing and, and looking over the implementation of the patent, the patent report and policing. And he once said to me in a meeting, he says, he said, I would give my red arm, and he was a police chief in Boston, I would give my red arm to be able to bring a patent commission to every police force in America. Yeah. You know, so so it was huge. The fact that it was independent, all of that, um, as, as stands, stands to it. Uh, however, if you like, the, the modern police service still taking positions on on legacy, which really belonged to the RUC, uh, was and continues, in my opinion, to be to be a mistake. And in fairness to the previous chief constable, uh, George Hamilton, mm-hmm. uh, he said in a meeting, it was actually uh, one of the negotiating meetings, uh, he said in answer to one of the unionists who asked him, what would you do? He said, I would hand over the keys and everything to do with legacy to someone else. That's what we were talking about. I think that was probably during Haas, the Haas talks. Mm. And of course, we went through the Haas talks and we ended up with the Stormtouse Agreement. And the Stormtouse Agreement is really what needs to be dealt with because you can't walk away from legacy. But it should be taken off. And, and chief constables have said this, take it away from them. Give it to somebody And else. yet they still won't take it away from them. And that's a political decision. That's, mm. that's not up there. Take it away from them if you want to see what the real potential in policing is in modern day. Take that away, and, and it will make a huge difference. The PSNI are a template for other police, police forces. forces in other countries, as is the Good Friday Agreement. So altogether, it was a, a very successful time in our lives, although we didn't anticipate it. David Andrews was the Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time of the Good Friday Agreement. If there was one thing over a long political career, I was a TD for 38 years in uh, in Dunleary, and I'd say it was the Good Friday Agreement was of all the things I did, and I did many things, was the greatest, without any doubt whatever. We put the commissioning into the agreement, but we never worked out the details of what had happened. We did set up the International Commission. I think you brought that legislation through the House um, that autumn, uh, and that set up the Chastelaine and the and the others to, to to deal with the issue. And they ultimately did deal with it, but not till two thousand and three. Now, I suppose our critics would say that the decommissioning ultimately brought down David Trimble because it went on too long. I suppose on one side of it, Republicans have said to me they couldn't do it any quicker. Yeah. Uh, the unions would say because it wasn't done quicker, even though the arms were put beyond oh. use, 
but I think we're 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 looking we're looking back now quarter of a century. But it actually happened within five years. But that five years, I suppose, seemed like an eternity. Yeah, well, I, I'd have thought that the um, two people who had a huge involvement in the decommissioning, well, to give Adams his credit, and, and particularly Martin McGuinness. I thought that Martin McGuinness was a... And uh, I think they brought the decommissioning thing over the line. Uh, I don't think they were popular with their own people. But in the final analysis, I think they were right. And uh, it achieved, as I say, the the outcomes from the Good Friday Agreement, which had been dealt with in its totality as an agreement. But there were issues in that agreement that had to be dealt with onwards and upwards. And I think that McGuinness, particularly McGuinness, had a very, very important role in all that. I think at some stage he sort of threw his hands in his air in the air and said that he'd do his best, but there are some gutter snipes in this organization. In his own organization. Very, very can you imagine? Well they had an enormous as as we had discovered through the intelligence and yeah. um you remember Cyril Ramaphosa and Marty Atasari came over as inspectors to make yeah. sure the arms weren't being used. Sure. But we did find out that the Gaddafi arms were were a sizable yeah. quantity of arms, yeah. and that they still had those arms. Yeah. So, if, in while we were under pressure to get them to get rid of them, they had a huge amount of arms still to get to, to deal with. To deal with, yeah. Funny enough, Northern Ireland now they're not arguing about the constitution. They're not arguing about territorial independence. No. They're they're not arguing about anything to do with the Good Friday Agreement. They're arguing about something that's related to Brexit. But it's caused us so much trouble now. Yes, I, I know you've been a committed, a committed European as I have been, and uh, you, you and I actually fought the campaign together for Maastricht back thirty years ago we this did year. Indeed, yes, and that was successful. Yes, well, that's the unfortunate part about it. It's just a political full stop as far as they're concerned, and I think that the real person to blame for all this is Donaldson. Without any doubt, whatever. And if Donaldson would behave himself, as you know, he walked out of the talk, uh, which didn't come as any great surprise to me. Now, he didn't like me, and it was utterly mutual, I need add. And uh, he is now the only person in the North that's holding up the progress of the uh, of Brexit, or the, which I think is a huge pity. Uh, and I wonder why are they afraid to have a... Sinn Féin as the First Minister, with them as Second Minister, having regard to the Sinn Féin's victory in the last uh, MLA elections. One doesn't know. But uh, one knows, of course, that uh, it's down to Donaldson. And if somebody could convince Donaldson that all is not as he contemplates, all is not bad, and much is good, that would be my view. Just in a nutshell, it's probably... Not necessarily shared by everybody, but I, I, I mean, that actually one person is, is the problem. 25 years since the historic agreement, and you say recognised internationally, UN push it all the time as an agreement to look at around the world. 25 years on, I don't think either of us will, will be around to celebrate the 50th anniversary, but... Um, you never know, you, uh, Robert. You, uh, you have an extraordinary uh, capacity for... Bo- bones are getting, doing things bones are getting slower. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, your hopes your hopes for what we have achieved and how you'd like to see it. But I, I think that the Good Friday Agreement is, is, is uh, utterly there forever and I, I can't see it being adjusted or anything like that and I, I think the Good Friday Agreement is there forever and long may it last I mean look at after 25 years what it's done to the north of Ireland and it's done for the north of Ireland and 25 years hence the 50 years I think it'll still be there with whatever minor adjustments as I say might have to be made biggest thing that was achieved by by the Good Friday Agreement, in my view, uh, and under your leadership and that of Tony Blair, and credit to you forever, is that we stopped the killing. We basically stopped the killing. That's Tim O'Connor, who was part of the Irish delegation that negotiated the agreement. We were coming off the back of it, like, because context is everything. The context is we were at the end of a, you know, 25, 30 years of a conflict that had cost the, the deaths of three and a half thousand people 
thousands more injured and maimed and a huge trauma on the whole place. You know, when I was driving here today, I, I, was, I drove past Talbot Street and I had just, I was sitting at the traffic lights, just looking at the sign Talbot Street. And I just, I, it just came back to me that on the 17th of May, 1974, there were at five o'clock on a Friday evening, people were walking down that street, a lot of them getting the bus at Bosaurus and a bomb went off and 14 people were killed and dozens more injured and lives changed forever just in that street. That's just one incident. You could repeat that all the way. That's just here in Dublin, look at Northern Ireland. So as I drive past Talbot Street today and just sitting there thinking about those poor people, people today can live their lives more or less. Like there's no society that's perfect. There's no scenario anywhere that's perfect. Of course, there are problems. But fundamentally, we can now go about, go about living lives and people can grow up and have their dreams. And, kind of, and so fundamentally, there's been a transformation. Now, having said all of that, we still, though, there are still big issues around the fundamentals here of two political philosophies that, that essentially see the world in a very different way called unionism, nationalism. And what we have, I hope the pact we have made is we will never again resort to the gun to settle those differences. But in every other respect, it's still, uh, you know, it's still game on as a, as a, we haven't convinced unionism that this is the wonderful pathway and they haven't convinced nationalism that their way is the wonderful way. So we are back to where you had us, you know, 25 years ago. Our task is to find a way that uh, through this fundamental, almost contradictory situation that everybody can live with. But I think if we can continue to, if we can continue the progress we've made in these 25 years, continue to build on that going forward, um, I just think that there's a, a, you know, a tremendous future. I watch it very closely because we all have a stake in it. You know, we put so much into it at the time. Liz O'Donnell was the junior minister for foreign affairs at the time of the talks. I suppose we thought it would be implemented more quickly. But when you think of the scale of changes that were that that the agreement envisaged, uh, the total remaking of Northern Ireland and the total remaking of the relationship between the UK and Ireland, um, you know, it's probably going to take a, a, another another while. But I do think the relationship between the two governments is key. To, to any success and I hope it's going to improve from now on. The issue that, you know, looking back over this over the years that like it was the PUP that were arguing that the consent principle should be in the agreement from the start. The fact that it was included um, was something that we'd asked for for so long. This is Don Purvis. Whilst I think Ulster Unionism had focused on Articles 2 and 3. We had focused on the, the principle of consent. And that certainly, I think, helped loyalism move on because it was one of their key asks. I remember Gusty Spence saying at the time, the union is safe. That's it. That was our, that was our strap line for the, for the assembly election that followed the, the, the referendum and was, has, has been critically important, you know, right down the line. And, that remains in place, even to this day. So unless the, the the two pieces of this island vote otherwise, you know, Northern Ireland's constitutional position remains the same. And even if that does change, you know, even in, you know, a hundred years time, if there is a, a referendum um, and people do decide to vote to unite both parts of the island, um, we voted for the Good Friday Agreement. We agreed that that would happen. Um, and we have to abide by that. You know, you can't be an a la carte. You can't pick and choose democracy. And if that's what people vote for in 100 or 200 years' time, then so be it. My parents were artists. My mother was an artist, painters, and they were also journalists on the art side. Here is Chris McCabe from the Northern Ireland office. My mother found the, particularly women in Northern Ireland in that society, were, were not as acceptable as artists. So I grew up, my, 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 they both wrote for... One wrote for the Irish Independent, the other wrote for the Sunday Independent, the arts columns. As a child, they were in, in, in Dublin quite a lot. Their agent was down here and right through my mother's life was, was Dublin based. So I grew up with a sort of a, the arts sport. Rugby was my sport, but just about every sport, all Ireland. So I was a very, very, I felt that completely. And I was involved with the civil rights movement when I was at Queen's. So from that point of view, I feel there's a movement and, and I've been, uh, I, I get the feeling that we're moving in a direction where there will be an agreed Ireland, where there will be the sort of Ireland that John Hume and we all want. I wouldn't put the details, but 
I don't believe that the union will. I don't believe the union will get will continue will get stronger than it is. The east and I think the the north south dimension will increase, and that would be fitting with what I was brought up as, which was that this island had a great deal to commend it between all sides. The alliance parties, John Alderdice, who went on to serve as the first speaker of the new Northern Ireland Assembly, says we must not allow the lessons learned along the way fade away. After the agreement. After the end of the violence, of course, there's a somewhat different agenda develops, and that is, how do you develop a new kind of society with new sets of values that don't reflect, they don't ignore, they don't dismiss our history and our culture and background, they recognise those, but they take us forward into a new dimension, to a new dispensation. And so the Alliance Party now is is a somewhat different kind of party, a different kind of leadership is required for that, which is why, you know, they they choose Naomi, who has a somewhat different personality from I have. But, but, you know, I couldn't be leading the party the way she does, because my personality is different. And I was, I think, appropriate enough for the time. But she's much more appropriate for these times and for this change and development and bringing it forward. So that's, and it's it's doing very well, as, as, as you've observed. Yeah. Many young people are looking to that. But but then there's a flip side to that. And it is that then people can get to the point of thinking, ah, well, we don't need to remember all of those old difficulties in the past. We can just get on with, quote, normal politics and with all its, you know, abusiveness and disrespect and all of these kinds. And that's a big mistake. And if there is one reason why we are in the difficulties we're in, uh, in in Northern Ireland from a political point of view now, it is because people think it's OK to just conduct your politics in the way that you might do in a society that was not so deeply divided, didn't have the history and background and culture it has. And what I would say to the younger people who are looking to develop our society uh, for the next 25 years, it is this, never forget that politics only works if you sustain a respectful, fair, decent democratic relationships with the people you disagree with. But don't believe that you can simply apply the politics of stable societies to a place like Northern Ireland, where the memory of the terrible things that happened is still very much alive for people and will be for the lifetime of the next generation at least. That's what I would advise them. Don't forget the lessons that we learned are not lessons for the past only. They're lessons for how we need to conduct ourselves now and into the future. And if we do that, it won't just benefit ourselves and the next generation. It won't just create a better and fairer society that everybody can live in. It will be that we will become an example and a sign of hope to people in other places who are still suffering violence and conflict. And that's the greatest prize of all, not just that we do things for the betterment of ourselves and our children and our grandchildren, but that we also are a sign of hope for people in other places. Ireland has a history of being a sign of hope. Uh, When Europe was in darkness, Ireland was able to hold a light and keep the candle alive. And then that went out to other parts of Europe many hundreds of years ago. I think we have that possibility still, and I certainly have the hope that we're able to sustain it and, and, and make sure that it happens for the future. Unquestionably, one of those who played a significant role in not only this peace process, but with the wider society in Northern Ireland was John Hume. He sadly passed away in 2020. But I asked his son, John Jr., how his dad and his mam, Pat, felt in the aftermath of the agreement. They felt that the middle ground the SDLP and and the, the Ulster Unionist Party were neglected in this. I think Tony Blair once, or I don't know who it was, said to Dad, well, look, you guys don't have any guns, so you're yeah, not important in this discussion. The famous Mallon, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that frustrated him a lot. And that led invariably to the, the decline of the SDLP electorally uh, and the decline of the Ulster Unionist Party, which, you know, uh, is is very frustrating. You know, that middle ground needs to take control again in the North. And I think, unfortunately, because of how things were structured post the, the, the Good Friday Agreement, I think there was a, there was an inevitability that the middle ground would, would lose. As things progressed sort of, you know, into 2005 onwards, then I think, you know, very slowly, but, but he started losing touch with what was going on, you know, and I think for, 
the last 10 years of his life, he was, you know, totally, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have known quite a lot of what was happening uh, politically. He, you know, he was, he was alive during Brexit, but he didn't sort of, he didn't sort of, it didn't register with him. If it had a registered, he would have been furious. Um, he thought that was, you know, I mean, the European Union played a big role in, you know, creating peace in this country. And uh, for him, you know, for Brexit would have been intolerable. It was just a, just the wrong thing to do, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think they were very frustrated, uh, as indeed you know the SCLP and the Ulster Unionists have been. And I think, you know, he would have been his advice to them would have been, you know, we need to. There is a middle ground here, whose primary concern here is about bread and butter politics. What's best for you know the people we represent, um, and maybe you know there should be getting together and pro because we we have more in common. Than we than that what drives us apart, and you know we need that ordinary sort of working people in the north need representation. I don't think your 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 dad would have been recommending that people should you know lose lose their their sleep over section D five four three B of the protocol. I, no. I, I I think you'd be a bit more concerned about jobs and investment and 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 I and I think. He, he he would see that protocol for what it is, which is a huge opportunity for the North, a huge opportunity because nowhere else will have access to the European Union and all the European Union's free trade agreements with the rest of the world, and at the same time have full access to the United Kingdom. It puts it in a, an incredible position where... You know, talking to business people, they see that, you know, investment in Northern Ireland has never be, had more of a compelling case. And I think that's something that my dad, if he was with us today, would be shouting from the rooftops, you know. Yeah, it's, 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 it's regretful that there doesn't seem to be any politician of, of any side that really is articulating that that vision. I, I think it's wrong for us not to touch on that because he, 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 gave, he gave incredible service to the European Parliament. He did. And... He described it as the, the greatest ever peacemaking exercise the world has ever seen. And I think he's, he took a lot of those principles that are at the heart of the EU and they resonated very much with his view of how the North should be. Um, you know, I w would regularly meet him in Brussels and uh, he would have a great working relationship with Ian Paisley. You know, they'd be you know, taking lumps out of each other on the TV, but to be sitting happily having lunch or sort of having a cup of coffee and chatting away and, you know, how's the wife and sort of, you know, and having, you know, friendly conversations. I mean, very much business-like, but at the same time, there was a, there was a friendly relationship there, um, you know, which, 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 which the neutral ground of Brussels or Strasbourg allowed to happen. And when it came to agricultural issues, when it came to getting grants, when it came to getting 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 uh, European funding for infrastructure, for roads, for bridges, for airports, for, for, for the north of Ireland, and, uh, Ian, Dad and Jim Nicholson, who was the, the Ulster Union, were absolutely aligned and they worked so well together. Um, and it was, you know, I mean, I suppose looking back on it, you know, it's, it was really, you know, it, it was plain as the, to the eye to see, I suppose that, you know, whilst dad perhaps was able to see, look, if we can work together here in Brussels for the common good, why can't we do it at home? I recall the, 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 the three of them working together. Isn't it ironic as we look back now in 2016, look back, um, Maybe it's just as well your dad didn't remember that time because I think the frustrations um, of how important Europe was uh, and DUP got that, UUP got that, um, the SCLP, your, your, your dad got that. And here they were working so successfully that Northern Ireland um, would, would get over its problems and over its difficulties within the European context. Uh, and here then the UK pull out and it creates this, 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 this problem. I mean, I think it is the, it, it is the, the one factor we discussed everything in the Good Friday Agreement, everything mm. you could ever think of. But the one thing nobody mentioned was UK leaving Europe. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think if you look at how the vote went, I mean, the people of the North voted to stay in the European Union. The people of England voted to leave and voted overwhelmingly. And I think what happens in Northern Ireland was not uppermost in their minds when they did so. And I think there's, 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 there's lessons to be taken away from that. I mean, if you look at the town of Derry, there was probably about 50 
potential border crossing points that lead from Derry to Donegal, you know, on, on all sides. And to think that this could make sense, to think that you could put up barriers where there haven't been barriers for 20 years, you know, I mean, it's, it's utter nonsense. I mean, half of Donegal works in Derry and, you know, and, and, and vice versa. And it's, you know, you know, for the people of Inishown, sort of Derry was pretty much their capital city rather than, you know, uh, rather than Dublin. Um, and that's where they went to university. That's where they sort of sent their kids and, and that's where they worked. And, you know, the, the, the complexity that this has created for the North is just, it's, it, it, it's, you know, I mean, well, we're seeing it played out at the moment. But, you know, Dad would have been furious. He would have been absolutely incandescent with rage that this could happen. Um, and he would have campaigned hard to, to, to try and stop it. Uh, but, you know, as when it happened, 2016, yeah, I, I, it, it, unfortunately with the dementia, which is an awful disease, it sort of, a lot of it went over his head, you know. What he has achieved, I think, is, a, is, is the city of Derry is a much better place today. The island of Ireland is a much better place today. Things aren't perfect, but, you know, they're a lot better than where we were. What seemed to be impossible as late as April 98 is now looked upon as a global example of what a peace deal can be. It's acknowledged by all it simply could not have happened without the chairmanship of Senator George Mitchell. As I watched George, I could see a therapist at work, you know, the extraordinary patients listening to everybody. Very shrewd, wasn't anybody's fool, sometimes had to be quite firm about things. Very calm, thoughtful, dependable. Everybody trusted his integrity. It was a masterclass in chairmanship. I've never seen anybody chair any set of negotiations like that. He never interrupted people. He, he let people talk. He reckoned that the problem was talking is better than killing. George proved to be a chair par excellence. He was calm. He was measured. He listened. And you knew he was listening through the reflections that he made. And he instilled a great sense of confidence um, in the whole process. We were blessed to have had um, a man of his calibre chairing the negotiations. I know all over the world, George, and you know this yourself, that the Irish people hold you very, very dearly for the work that you did. But you you told us a story about when you um, went back, back home to Heather, went back to the family after Good Friday. You went for a, a walk in, the, um, uh, in Central Park, uh, on Easter Sunday, and you ran into to some Irish people, would you? Well, of course, uh, needless to say, the uh, my experience in Northern Ireland, while one of the greatest and most interesting parts of my life, uh, placed a great strain on my family. I retired from the Senate at the end of December of 1994, and I got married just a couple of weeks before that. And I told my wife, I'm finished with politics. I want to lead a normal life. Being Senate Majority Leader of the United States is a very uh, demanding job, and I thought it would be difficult, particularly if we ended up raising a family, which we did. So uh, for me, it was uh, a, a both tremendously interesting, in, in a curious way, tremendously fulfilling. My father's parents had been born in Ireland, but he never knew his parents, was adopted by a non-Irish family. And so I didn't have any sense of Irish heritage before I went there. And I, I having now been there so much and enjoyed it so much and been treated so warmly, uh, I love Ireland. I love Northern Ireland. I enjoyed being there, uh, that I kind of feel that uh, an internal void that I didn't even know existed has been filled. And I, I have some sense of the, the heritage of my my father's family. But because of this difficulty back and forth, uh, my wife gave birth to our son uh, in October of 1997, just when things were going very badly. And then they proceeded to get worse, as we've already described, before we came back and got the agreement. But in the closing days of those intense discussions, I, I said repeatedly, to the party leaders of Northern Ireland, this is going to be over this weekend, one way or the other, and I'm leaving. And if we don't get an agreement, you'll be left here to try to explain to the people you represent how you, you could not get an agreement. And I, I, I said, and, and then 
to guarantee you I got to leave, I promised my wife that uh, I'd be back on Easter Sunday, which was April 12th, to uh, take her for a walk in Central Park. We, at that time, lived uh, in an apartment in New York City right next to uh, Central Park, and that was one of our favorite things to do, just take nice walks. It's a beautiful park. Not nearly as large as Phoenix Park in Dublin, or mm-hmm. ours, but very nice. And uh, so we, uh, I, I, and I actually showed them the plane ticket, both back then, 30 before electronics took over. And then you, you, you get a paper ticket in advance to go on an airplane. So I had a ticket to fly to from uh, Belfast to London to New York on that Saturday. And uh, so I did. And we got up, my wife and I, at Easter morning at breakfast. And then we took our, by then, our, our uh, a boy who was about, I don't know, six or eight months old. I strapped him on one of those carriers and we walked into Central Park and and the very first person we encountered, we hadn't taken 10 steps into the park when a woman walked up to me and she said, I'm from Northern Ireland and I want to thank you for what you did. I said, my God, what an unbelievable coincidence. I've run into someone from Northern Ireland, the first person I meet in Central Park on Easter Sunday. And then by a further incredible coincidence, uh, about uh, 15 years later, I spoke at a conference on conflict resolution in Los Angeles, California. And when I finished, the same woman came up to me and reminded me of who she was. And she had, she had by then emigrated to the United States, was living in Los Angeles and working on conflict resolution. So I like to say that Northern Ireland, not only, hopefully, was able to have enduring peace, but also are spreading it around the world. I'm back at my grandchildren's school in Malahide, North County, Dublin. In the agreement, uh, there is a clause that says someday, doesn't exactly say when, there will be a vote on what happens uh, in the new Ireland. So all of you, um, somewhere, I think could be five, ten years time, but you'll all have votes. Um, and someday you'll all be voting, is there going to be a new Ireland? It has to be negotiated, but it will, because it's in the agreement, it will have to happen. You'll all get the opportunity of being able to vote, yes or no. Um, I, 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 I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. There's a lot of work going on about how you will amalgamate the various things, amalgamate the health service between North and South. It'd have to be agreed how the guards would join with the, the, the police in the North, how the courts would join. All those things would have to be discussed. Now that has started. If I was here two years ago, I would say it's terrible. There's nothing happening. But now there are a whole lot of groups to do the research and to say how a new Ireland would work, how, how you would actually put the 32 counties of Ireland into one. Um, it won't be easy, I can tell you, but uh, it, it, it is part of the agreement and it will happen and you will ultimately have to vote on it. Um, my own view is there are some people who think that will happen in the next one years, two years, three years. I don't think there's a hope in hell in that happening. I think it'll take a number of years, but it will, it will happen and your generation uh, will, will all have uh, the choice on that. And I think that's what it was about. It was about trying to stop the trouble, don't forget the past, respect all those that, that died, the thousands that died and the, the tens of thousands that were injured and maimed and get a new start. And that's what your generation are now going to have to do is to carry on that issue because we spent 800 years killing ourselves on this island. If you go back in our history, about every 50 years was another war, another battle, more people killed. And what the Good Friday Agreement hopefully, hopefully does and your, your generation going to have to carry it on in every way, in business, in teaching, in whatever you do in your life, in your normal, your normal social life, is that we have peace and we never again in this island go back uh, to, to, to making politics work by the gun. Uh, and hopefully it never will. Thanks. As I remember it, is a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. Producers Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing, 
Lachlan Hart. Video producer, Rory Walsh. Special thanks to Eamon Parsney, Sandra Culler, the Keen Flanagan, Chris Corbett, Shane Coleman, Henry McKean, Michael Staines, Kevin Manning, David Hayes, Corla Ty, the Skyland Hotel, the Bonnington Hotel, Connor Muldoon, John Kyo, and Patricia Monaghan. You can find bonus material, including full interviews, videos, a glossary of who's who in the peace process, and a timeline of the Good Friday Agreement on Newstalk.com.